Hello, greetings and thank you for joining for episode number 142 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode we're going to hear from Malte Furman, a research fellow at the Leibniz Central Moderna Orient in Berlin and the author of Port Cities of the Eastern Mediterranean, Urban Culture in the Late Ottoman Empire, published by Cambridge University Press. The book is a really fascinating study going deep into countless archives to paint a vivid panorama of life in the culturally and linguistically diverse cities of Salonika, Istanbul and Izmir through the 19th and early 20th centuries. It shows us how the inhabitants of those cities, Muslims, Christians and Jews and the various denominations within them, engaged with innovative forms of entertainment arriving from Europe and adapted them to local conditions, effectively creating a crucible of Ottoman modernity and reshaping ideas of class, gender and national identity. All of this was happening as radical new ideas of nationalism were also planting roots among various Ottoman communities and in that sense the book strikes quite a poignant note as the cosmopolitan existence that it describes will ultimately go up in flames, quite literally in the case of Izmir, amid the circumstances around the Ottoman Empire's collapse, the First World War and Turkey's subsequent War of Independence. Before we get started with the interview, let me just remind you that you can find our entire archive of episodes going back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com. Also remember that if you like what we're doing, you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Becoming a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount deal of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive transcripts in English and translated into Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published and you get transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up including many extra ones not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send out to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's crack on with our conversation with Malte Furman. The book is chock full of fascinating details, historical detritus and tireless socio-cultural excavations in a very wide range of sources. So I started by asking what triggered him to start research for what eventually became this book and what he wanted to achieve with it. In that period when I was first starting to get into the subject, we were experiencing sort of the Europhilia in the Eastern Mediterranean. This was the mid-2000s, the time when Greece had joined the Eurocurrency zone. Turkey was expecting for negotiations to go ahead. And if you visited these cities, if you knew them, Salonika, Istanbul, Izmir, then you could see this historic layer of 
the 19th century engagement with European society, the attempt to adapt to general styles of architecture, which were prevalent there, the uh, institutions which one uh, still sees until today, such as the German social club of the Teutonia, the French one of the Union Française, or the Italian society. While none of these are very much at the front of what you see of these cities today, you could see that this 19th century engagement of the Eastern Mediterranean with Europe was more complex, more layered. It wasn't a clear, this is European, this is Oriental, if you so will. It was actually a mix, an eclectic mix and adaptation. And that process is what I was trying to understand in more detail. There's a fascinating story that you refer to at the start of the book, and I'll quote it at length here because it really is worth doing so. It's about a man who grew up in um, this cosmopolitan era of Istanbul, I think it was. So you recount this story and you say, quote, A Greek colleague once told me about her grandfather. He was suffering from dementia. Dementia is understood as the gradual erosion of an individual's personality as it's evolved throughout his or her life. By losing his memories one step at a time, from the most recent to those of events long past, her grandfather was reverting, travelling back in time through his own life, until he would ultimately end up in a childlike state. During his illness, two ruptures particularly startled his relatives. At some point, the man stopped speaking Greek and would only talk in Turkish. Then, in a later stage, he stopped speaking Turkish and started only singing French, Christian and children's songs. And that is a striking, even chilling story, actually. And it does, I think, get to the point that you made before. I mean, why highlight this example? What does that story tell us about the case that you're making? So many narratives about the 19th century and the big themes which uh, the population of the Ottoman Empire and the Eastern Mediterranean seaboard in general was confronted with have this notion that modernization, westernization, Europeanization, call it what you will, in this area sort of what happened at a level where some enlightened politicians were thinking like, oh, should we adopt this policy? policy should be perhaps not adopted or amended. So as a very, something very far away, actually, from what essentially makes people modern Greeks or modern Turks. And my idea was to show in this way, this was not something as far away to these people. Through this very Franco-centric education we had, all these French-language schools, French-language newspapers, through the styles of how people were dressing, how people would experience their surroundings, through the attempts to change these cities in general, these were actually things which made a very deep impact on people, on their personalities, on their mental map of the world. That is what I'm trying to communicate via this anecdote. One thing I got as I read the book, it's just this renewed realization of the almost unbelievable, multifarious, multi-layered nature of these cosmopolitan port cities that you study in the book, and how that was pretty much exactly the opposite, really, of the nationalist paradigm that came afterwards, that built up throughout the 19th century and then came to dominate in the 20th century. You could argue that the nationalism that emerged was really a direct reaction against what these port cities represented. So looking back, it's, it's easy to see why the uh, messy, complicated, social structure of these three cities was so offensive, even disgusting to the nationalists who uh, came to dominate in the early 20th century. Yeah. 
I think to some degree there's uh, actually a bit of a parallel to today when we have some very vociferous movements against mixing, against a diversified society. I think this kind of strong reaction is a counter-reaction to actually the ongoing diversification of society. To some degree, this actually repeats definitely experiences people were making before World War One. The standard narrative of evolving nation-states and evolving nationalist movements, no matter whether they are Turkish or Greek or Bulgarian or Armenian, in this region is to sort of understand the 19th century as a kind of crescendo, a rising tendency towards nationalism throughout the century and the gradual loss of a more multicultural, cosmopolitan understanding of what society is made up out of. I'd like to challenge that to some degree. I think what we actually saw was two parallel trends. We did have actually a growing understanding towards the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century in places such as Salonika, Istanbul and Izmir that it's actually okay to be mixed. I found some Italian-German couple who named their children in 1913 uh, Giovanni Chiamil or Nicolas Farus, so a mixture of Arabic and Italian names to actually somehow positively identify with the fact that even if you are born by Italian parents at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, there is some part of Oriental culture, Muslim culture to these places and to the way these people grow up. And I found several hints at this, that there was actually a kind of counter-movement going on, which of course pressed uh, nationalist movements perhaps to take more affirmative action in sight of this blend of identities between Greeks, Turks, Sephardic Jews, Italian minorities and so on. Now, much of the book is taken up with examining and describing the spread of essentially European origin leisure practices. And one leisure pursuit in particular stood for celebrating the new 19th century culture, the dramatic arts and opera. So talk about this and specifically opera. There's a whole chapter devoted to opera in the book. What was opera's importance? So... Opera is a strange phenomenon. While there is no institution until around the time of World War I in the Ottoman Empire to actually learn the dramatic arts and singing in the Western style or in the operatic style, there is actually a very strong flow of migration of musicians, opera artists, especially from Italy, moving to the Ottoman Empire, performing some for one season some for just one little tour, some for a lifetime on the stages of the Eastern Mediterranean, Istanbul, Izmir, Salonika. And this would not have been possible without demand. And we can see that from rather early on, 1830s, 1840s, the opera buildings, the opera theatres are founded and there is a constant demand. These are not just a handful of Italian expats or European expats. These are actually Greeks, Armenians, Turks going to see these operas. And quite often, these are operas which are performed, as some contemporaries proudly say, in Istanbul before they show in Paris, for example. 
What makes up this fascination for opera? I think there is something like a reciprocal attention between people from the western and central parts of Europe and these people at the far end of Europe on the Mediterranean shore. There is this hope that western Europeans will show an interest in life and culture of the so-called Orient. However, there's sort of a wave which is over just around then, you might say Beethoven in the 1820s is perhaps one of the last artists to work strongly with Turkish input into Western symphonic music. The West starts to lose interest, unfortunately, just in the period when the Ottomans start gaining interest in the culture of the others. So uh, rather than actually being able to, you might say, discuss or engage with another's cultures reciprocally, we find that the Ottomans are sort of just consumers of the Western forms of entertainment, even though they had hoped for more. And the first theatre in Istanbul on these modern European lines to be set up was uh, called Naum Teatro, off Istiklal Jadesi, I believe. Yes. Who was behind that and how did the Naum Theatre emerge? Mm-hmm. The Naum Theatre is a testament to the fact that these forms of theatrical engagement initially popped up rather erratically and from bottom up rather than top down. It was not like the Sultan who said like, oh, I like theatre, I'm going to import it, and then the subjects followed. It was definitely the other way around. We had these musicians from Italy, singers, performers, stage builders, And while traveling around the eastern Mediterranean, they found that there was, in Istanbul and many of these towns, no proper stage. They performed in salons, but salons do not give enough space for the audience, which also means these artists could not make a sufficient amount of money on their shows. So some of them initially built an impromptu outdoor stage in the middle of Pera, today's Beyolu, so what was considered the foreigner's quarter of Istanbul, just on a plot of land which had become empty due to a fire, a building by the Naum family being burnt down in this very spot. And from then on, once this site had become established, uh, some other Italians took the initiative to build a building on this spot. Very much later, the proprietor of the plot of land, Naum, actually took the theater over, started running it, and then actually did get some imperial subsidies, although this was far from a state theatre. This was a theatre grown up on the self-initiative of Italian travelling artists, taken up by a local society very much interested in these foreign arts, and then only at a much later stage getting subsidies from the Sultan. And the site of that is Istiklal, across from Galatasaray Lisesi, and in what is today known as uh, the Chichek Passage, is that right? Yes, that's right. Okay, check that out next time I'm walking by. Um, Armenians, uh, Ottoman Armenians had an outsized weight and importance in the theatre scene. They were the real pioneers of many developments on this front at the time. Why was it that Armenians were so prominent in theatre at this point? So initially, these foreign arts were taken as a point of 
interest from many uh, Turkish Muslims, but very few engaged with them. We have a very early theater play or operetta uh, written by a Turkish Muslim author. However, it was not performed in its day. Initially, theater performance was looked down upon, was considered something of a rather seedy kind of nature. This was not something upper-class uh, Muslims would engage with. What you had was Turkish-speaking Armenians who would often come from very low-class backgrounds, shoemakers, salesmen. These kind of people would, as a kind of second job, also engage in theater performances. And this becomes a bit of an embarrassment initially for uh, some of the more middle-class Turkish Muslim intellectuals of the time. You find these newspaper comments that these actors, they speak Turkish with horrible Armenian accent and that they are um, too little educated and because of that don't know how to perform these plays right. But that is how this art was actually created. Turkish language theater and operetta was initially something done by Armenian actors, but also actresses. Armenian actresses are very much at the forefront of creating this art and actually women playing on stages in the Ottoman Empire. And often these leisure practices that we're talking about, they were sites of quite easy mixing between different communities. So to what extent did Muslims form part of this picture, particularly in, in the theatre? You say there they were less represented, but are there any examples of um, Muslims becoming prominent in, in theatre and, and engaging much more deeply in it? Definitely. I mean, like most of what I've uh, just said about Armenian actors playing such an important role, this goes for the middle of the 19th century until perhaps the late 19th century. By then, Turkish Muslim actors and troops do become far more widespread. Entrepreneurs in this business become more widespread. However, there is still some kind of movement against theater performances in general in some landlocked faraway provinces, such as Erzurum. We have knowledge in 1908 of some kind of local protests against theater performances there during Ramadan, even though Ramadan is the main season traditionally for theatrical performances in the Ottoman Empire. We also have, following the 1908 revolution, a protest against a theater performance in front of Turkish men and Turkish women at the same time in a club, even in Izmir, which was considered the most progressive place in this period. But yes, theaters, balls, beer, all these for new forms of entertainment, they are definitely not off limits to Turks. Uh, it is more a question of choice. Um, it is not really a question of having a clearly segregated society when it comes to the ballrooms, the theater performances, or the beer gardens. Audio on the record. Beer, 
Repeatedly throughout the book, you make the point that uh, Smyrna or Izmir was actually much more creative, progressive and interesting, actually, than Istanbul in terms of adopting and adapting these new cultural forms. Istanbul is portrayed as being rather sluggish, and it only really became interesting in a lot of these areas towards the end of the century. Until then, really, Smyrna remained the trendsetter. That might be surprising for some listeners. There's this point Daniel Goffman already makes in his earlier writings about Izmir. Izmir is originally a sort of forgotten outpost of the Ottoman Empire, even though it is not so far away from Istanbul. The Ottoman court did not have a clear development policy for this area, Western Anatolia. They just considered it something of a breadbasket, something to make sure that the capital receives enough food from it. And in this this region, which is much richer, develops its own contacts abroad, across the Mediterranean, to Marseille, to Genoa, Venice, and later to the Netherlands and Great Britain. And this is sort of what gives Izmir the head start when, in the 19th century, the whole Ottoman Empire decides to more strongly orientate its politics, its uh, economics, its culture towards Europe. Izmir has already taken several steps in this direction. It's at the forefront of economic exchange. This was the port which was much more important than Istanbul by far, especially as a center of export. Istanbul is a, a large consumer. It's a place which imports and only exports very little in this period. Izmir, on the other hand, has all these agricultural productions, cash crops of Western Anatolia, which are brought there from opium towards cotton, dried fruits, all kinds of products which it has to offer the rest of Europe. And through this kind of heavy traffic, you might say, across the Mediterranean, you also find a much stronger exchange in cultural products, new ideas happening. So it is this head start, basically, which gets Izmir there much earlier than Istanbul. The book sections on beer are absolutely fascinating. So beer was practically non-existent in the Ottoman Empire at the dawn of the 19th century, but it was being produced on an industrial scale 100 years later and was widely available. And the famous uh, industrial beer factory in Bermonti in Istanbul is still standing today as a cultural centre, of course. So what was behind the rise of beer and why did that happen? Similar to opera, beer becomes something of a signifier of a new openness towards tastes, styles, fashions from overseas. And some people want to, to show that in an explicit way, that they embrace these new ways. And while an opera ticket might be expensive, a Western-style suit might be expensive. A uh, drink is something which one can easily acquire 
desire, something one can show off one's Europeanness with. So we find people going out, trying to show that they are open to this new culture, to whatever kind of changes come from overseas. But nonetheless, that is, of course, not all of it. There are also things which are associated with beer, which point in another direction. For example, until this period in time, it's been kind of normal that when going out, say, into a coffee house, you would only run into to pure male society. That's different in the beer gardens. These beer gardens are places where one sees not only men, but also women dressed in fashions, which until then had not been very much around in the Ottoman Empire. So that is part of a European and mixed gender kind of sociability, which now is starting to arise and which people want to be part of. Yeah, the cultural divide over beer that you describe is very interesting. So in your account, beer wasn't actually at the center of the familiar secular religious cultural divide that we recognize today. But there was a very sharp perceived cultural difference between beer and other spirits like wine or particularly raka, which of course was seen as having much deeper roots and indeed did have much deeper roots in the Ottoman Empire at the time. So as you say there, beer was generally seen as foreign, cosmopolitan, even effeminate, which may be surprising to some listeners, while Raqqa was seen as being local, traditional, patriotic even, rooted, yearly vermili, you might uh, you might say. Let's talk about that whole fascinating cultural aspect of things. Yes, so beer was also associated with a new style of going out culture, whereas before you had the mehane and in descriptions from that time period, mehanes were a very different institution from what we know today. Taverns uh, would be the correct uh, term to translate mehane. Apparently, it was usually fairly small institutions. People would go to the bar, would stand at the bar, interact at the bar with the other patrons. Food, the meze would be in dishes along that bar. And there was no waiters, there was no tables. Tablecloths, the fact that you would sit down for your dinners, that is seen as something originally very strange from the perspective of people who have preferred to enjoy these mehanes with their particular culture. However, as we see nowadays, and what I think was probably evident by the end of the 19th century already, these cultures started to mix. Raqqa drinking places would start to adapt tables. Drinks would be beer, Raqqa would be available interchangeably. Nonetheless, at this period, this nationalist paradigm starts to evolve where people try to think of Raqqa as their national drink, the drink of the Ottomans. Plus, Raqqa is believed to be the drink of the community. There are countless rituals of the, the sofra, the um, common communion of the patrons, whereas beer, at least in the social critique it receives from observers at the time, is considered to be a drink for narcissists, for people who uh, try to go more for the status of what they are doing rather than enjoying what they are doing. These are people who try to show off 
their fancy European dress, the glass of beer in front of them. These are not people who are actively engaged in a uh, form of cultural exchange with other people. That is the message which um, the nationalist critique of beer brings across. Just to be clear, the people making that nationalist critique, they crossed communal boundaries as well? Were they mainly Muslim Turks making that, those cases or were there also Christian communities in the Ottoman Empire also sort of defending Raqqa as a patriotic drink to drink? I couldn't say uh, for sure, to be honest, since I've done more reading on the Turkish perspective of this. However, what I can say is that, especially in the early years of beer, there was quite some opposition also from other people, Armenians, Greeks, who also found this a weird Frankish drink. For example, we have in the um, recollections of Hagop Mitsuri, a young migrant to the city at the time. I think he was 14 years old when he came to a beer garden for the first time together with his fellow workers in an Armenian uh, bakery. He thinks like, oh, it's honey colored, so probably it's some kind of honey drink. He takes a sip, then uh, realizes that the drink is rather bitter and refuses to finish his glass. And uh, while people urge him to get used to it, to accept this drink, he firmly states that uh, he finds it absurd to be drinking something as bitter as beer. So um, while this is not explicitly something going into the nationalist narrative, it is sort of the gut reaction which nationalists later develop into this big paradigm of beer is something Frankish, it is not according to our culture. Now, the era in question, the 19th century, late 19th century, was an era of the rapid spread of educational institutions among various groups. And these were often based on religious denomination. So teaching was in a variety of languages based on what school it was, obviously. And there was a real cornucopia of establishments, education establishments. And this whole process brought various tensions into the open and also led to the questioning of traditions in many senses. So to talk about that, how does this expansion of education institutions fit into the story that you were telling in the book? So throughout the Ottoman Empire, I believe, around the time of the 1820s, there's this belief that the Ottoman traditional education system is not doing a good job of adapting to the 19th century, to the new prerequisites in technological progress, scientific progress, medicinal knowledge, but also in the languages necessary, that the curriculum is stuck to things which might have been appropriate a century or two ago. So especially the middle classes are interested in finding newer and better educational systems. And as of Sultan Mahmoud, we know that actually the state did its best to try and develop new forms of schools as well. 
However, one decisive factor in all of this is the foreign schools. Originally, there were quite a number of Catholic or Protestant schools just catering to a number of expats in the port cities. However, during the period as of, say, the 1830s, we have a rapid expansion of these kind of schools. And this is not just because there are more new foreigners moving there, but it is because middle class Greeks, uh, Sephardim, but also uh, Turks, and other members of local society, they are interested in a better education for their children. And while they realize that a lot of these, especially French, but also British, German, Italian schools are founded on missionary intent or upon imperialist spreading of the greatness of, say, France or Germany, people still think that this will be the best they can find for their children. And the good thing from a sort of consumer's point of view is that even if France and Germany try to transport imperialist content in the education, due to the fact that there is a local competition between these imperial centers and various religious denominations, should there be an excess of imperialist or missionary fervor, you can take your children, bring them to another school where these factors are more balanced. And so while these schools certainly play some part in, as one contemporary calls it, alienating people from their local surroundings, they are nonetheless also a way of actually bringing them together at the same time, bringing together people who might not have known people from other denominations in their own city as well. By going to, say, a French school, a, say, Serbian student might meet a Sephardic one with some French Italians mixed in and so on. This is actually also to some degree a neutral ground, but it is so not because of the intentions of the school founders, but because of the way local society makes use of these schools. Now, this question fits in nicely with uh, the next question, which is gender roles. Obviously, education, the, the spread of education among various communities in the Ottoman Empire led to the education in, often of young girls and women. And that was obviously a big shift from before. So just wonder if you could reflect on that question, how gender roles were shifting at, at this time as well and how different expectations were emerging across communities and across classes in this era. So, once again, there's a salutary effect of competition in this case. While many local communities might, out of their own initiative, perhaps not have embraced higher education for young girls, as soon as one school started it, the other communities would have to follow suit. In the case of Smyrna or Izmir, this was actually first offered at least to higher class girls by the German Protestant deaconesses. And the school became a success in the early 1850s because there was no other school of the kind. So soon after, the Catholics and the Greek Orthodox had to wake up to the fact that, yes, there is a demand for teaching young girls and even Greek girls will go to a Protestant school rather than to a Greek Orthodox one if this is the only place which offers good education.
Revolution. So the Greek Orthodox had to come up with a counter-initiative and create a school for upper-class Greek young girls as well. And um, we do find a lot of flux in possible gender roles, possible roles for women in this time. Nonetheless, there's always a very strong element of trying to control this. There are countless pamphlets on the market in Armenian, Greek, Ottoman, Turkish, all kinds of languages, trying to teach especially teenage girls and young women, yes, of course we need some kind of education, but this should not change the traditional makeup of our society. Quite often, on the other hand, there will be attacks against some possible excesses of the patriarchal system. Some authors in the Muslim case take a stance against polygamy, which is not very widespread in this period anymore anyways. But there is an, a strong element of trying to rein in a social experiment, trying to keep people from exercising all the possibilities of the modern world, always on the account of morals and respect for the traditional community. And this leads to some conflicts and to something which the contemporaries consider a kind of malaise, a sense of yeah, not feeling well with one's own role in society. I found a newspaper discussion in a 1895 newspaper in Salonika. What were women... Uh, discussing about their gender roles. And uh, quite a number of people came to the conclusion, yes, we would actually very much like to embrace more openly the possibilities of the modern world. But here we are in a port city on the eastern Mediterranean, where people just think that engaging with the West is only necessary to uh, make more business, where it's not about cultivating one's own ideals, one's poetry, possibly also one's body, uh, try to exercise, try to do sports, another concept which comes up in this period. So we find this sense of being ill at ease in this discussion with this contrast between knowing through education, through reading newspapers, imported books and whatnot, knowing of the wider world, but at the same time always finding local society trying to drag you down and trying to sort of anchor people against the so-called temptations of modernity. And that is one of the fascinating things about this period around the last turn of the century. Now, we should also talk about Levantines. These are obviously residents of the uh, East Mediterranean coastline who are either native to the area or who have, through long-term residence, adapted to the local conditions of European origin. So they or an earlier generation of their family were traditionally affiliated with the Roman Catholic Church or another church based in Western or Central Europe. And obviously these criteria combined people from a great variety of geographic origins. So even uh, Arabic speaking Maronites from Lebanon, Greek speaking Catholics from the Aegean Islands, families descending from the uh, original residents of the Genoese settlement in Galata, people of Venetian or French origin who had settled in the Levantine port for commercial reasons. So a very wide variety of possible origins. And obviously they also had a variety of legal and citizenship statuses. 
but shared by this umbrella term Levantine. And they're very interesting because they had this ambivalent position, really, in between local Ottoman and European conditions. So how do the Levantines fit into the picture that we're telling of rapidly developing cultural engagement with Europe and the effects on the local landscape? Yes, Levantines are, there is quite some debate how we should actually try to characterize them. While some people say, well, we shouldn't use this term at all, because if you look at the sources from the 19th century, nobody really stood up and said, like, we are the Levantines. This is us. This is our identity. These kind of discourses emerged at a later point in time, actually, a positive identification with that term I at least did not run across earlier than the 1920s, 1930s. And this kind of self-designation was then seized by other authors writing until today. Whereas other authors try to define Levantines according to the lines, as you have just summarized, as people associated with one of the churches of Western Europe, but resident for many generations in the Eastern Mediterranean. This kind of identity merging, blending, is something which was apparently fairly accepted in, say, late 18th century, throughout the 19th century, but which also comes under attack as of the beginning of the 20th century. Nation states ask more strongly for their subjects or their citizens to positively affirm the national identity. So it's no longer seen as something people can just sort of live with this in-between identity. Uh, when these people try to renew their passports at, say, the Italian consulate or the Habsburg consulate, they are, after some point in time, confronted with these demands for lasting loyalty, for signs of their actual affection for their so-called homeland from across the sea. So this kind of ambivalent tendency towards identity, perhaps rather this idea of trying to live in a space where ambivalence is something accepted by society, that is something which unfortunately starts to die out at the beginning of the 20th century, even though these communities to some degree still exist until today, although they do not have the central importance they used to have in the economic life of maritime trade of the Eastern Mediterranean. Yeah, as nationalism took, took root, it seems almost inevitable that this Levantine tradition would be a victim, really. It was, uh, in many senses, a, a relic from a past era, you could argue. Yes, that's definitely the attitude people from a nationalist with nationalist ambitions had in this period. There was this idea that in between this ambivalence, lack of allegiance, we have to think this is a time when people are actually fighting about which provinces of the Ottoman Empire will become part of Bulgaria or Greece or remain with the Ottoman Empire or later the Turkish Republic. So there is this sense of urgency and there's this sense that those people who are somehow in between are something like 
traitors. And together with Levantines, another term which takes on a strongly negative connotation in this time period, not only in the Eastern Mediterranean, but around the globe, is cosmopolitan. Cosmopolitan is seen as people who put their material interests before any kind of other allegiances and because of that, for example, in Turkish nationalist ideological writings from this time, you can find cosmopolitan as sort of a synonym for the word imperialist. Now, towards the end of the book, you talk about the expansion of cosmopolitanism and its almost inevitable collapse. So it gives a rather cyclical view, actually, in which development and opening up is naturally, almost inevitably followed by retrenchment and nationalism in this case. And uh, you mentioned it towards the beginning of the interview, but you draw intriguing parallels with today's world. Uh, again, we're arguably in a, a period of nationalist retrenchment in many ways after a massive generational expansion of globalization and liberalization. So just talk about that aspect uh, in a bit more detail, you know, detecting echoes in the present day social and political circumstances echoes of this era in the previous great collapse, really, of cosmopolitanism and globalization in the era that you study in the book. Yes. So when trying to write about this feeling of being confronted with all kinds of influences from around the globe in a period which, just as the last, say, 30 years of our time, for people reaching maturity around 1900, they could look back at the same thing with steamship connections across the Mediterranean becoming widespread, with new railway links, uh, which makes it possible to travel to Vienna from Istanbul in, say, roughly two days or something. Plus, information flows, while this is, of course, only a fraction of the information flow expansion we've had in our lifetime. Nonetheless, the fact that you can read in a newspaper news from something happening in the Americas just uh, mere days ago, thanks to telegraph connections, newspaper print, and steamships transporting uh, these newspapers, these facts did lead to this feeling of people that they are living in a globalizing age in the late 19th and early 20th century. And when trying to make sense of this mass of new possibilities and at the same time these local restraints I've been talking about, to sort of come to an understanding of that, I found it helpful not to stick just to the writings of local Ottoman writers, but to see this as part of a, a wider trend, something trans-European. And looking at the experiences of people, say, in the Habsburg Empire, where you have a great literature output about this feeling. In some of the writings of Hans Kafka or Robert Musil, there are reflections which can be linked to the experience of modernity in very poly-ethnic, multicultural cities of the Habsburg Empire. And then another thing I found very helpful was a quote by Nietzsche, who reflects about the onslaught of modernity as a cosmopolitan gods, morals, and arts carnival, and where he sort of advises the good Europeans, as he calls the people he's thinking about, to um, refrain from 
not going for these modern ideologies which seem to make life easier. He is critical of um, socialism, liberalism, capitalism, but he draws another strong line when it comes to nationalism and anti-Semitism, which he finds as sort of the cheapest way, the most ugly way to deal with a modern diversifying world. So he calls on people not to sort of feel this element of malaise to this element of being overpowered by modernity and diversity, but instead to focus on the fact that it gives people greater opportunities and to to live with that, even though what one sees as the modern world, in his words, is rather a transitory phase. And if I try to draw a line from that notion to today, I'd say, yes, we are once more in the framework of a cosmopolitan gods, arts, and morals carnival. And I would say that this time it is not at all clear yet whether really these people who challenge diversity will win out in the end, as they did clearly in the Eastern Mediterranean theater on the eve of World War One, or in the course of World War I and the wars which continued to rock the region until 1923. We will see, is perhaps this diversified society perhaps today more resilient? Are we actually watching perhaps only a sort of vanguard action of people who are trying to attack globalization and diversity? Or will we see somehow this kind of unmixing as it happened in World War One and the other wars of the period? Will we see that repeated? We don't know as of today, but we have some reason to hope that today there is a stronger sense, a more widespread sense of trying to embrace diversity rather than trying to do away with diversity. That was Maltir Furman. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 142. The song you heard in the middle of our conversation there was a 1908 recording of Bizkarolu Yavrusuyuz, Kork Mayiz, from Leblebeji Horhor Aga, the chickpea seller, a wildly popular 1875 Turkish language operetta written by the Ottoman-Armenian composer Tigran Chuhajian. You'll have to do a bit of searching online if you want to find more where that came from. It's not exactly the kind of banger that you'll be able to easily find on Spotify. But anyway, remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership pays for things like our new website, turkeybooktalk.com. And membership also gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on whatever podcast platform you use, follow via Twitter or our Facebook page, and I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to check out Friends of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that's put together by the journalists Razie Akkoc and Diego Cupolo, a package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com to find out how to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Oh, the only one
Hold on the record. Oh, yeah. 